Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Jane Treyscott, who has written Cleopatra's daughter, Egyptian princess, Roman prisoner, and African. Queen, and th- today we are going to talk about Cleopatra. And I'm going to add as well that there might be minor disturbances today be- because I'm not in my home office. I'm uh, in a more public place. I'm in the Isabel Quiet here where I'm currently at, but there might be minor disturbances. So I'm so sorry if there are. So, but of course, I always begin asking our guests how did they come about studying the Ptolemies and uh, of course, Cleopatra, whom we are going to talk about today. Right. So I'm a Roman historian. I've I've been studying uh, Roman history since I went to university. And when I did my PhD, I looked at health in Greco-Roman Egypt. So I suppose being interested in Greco-Roman Egypt got me interested in Cleopatra because you can't really uh, do do one with, without doing the other. And because I've ended up teaching uh, a course on Cleopatra at the University of Glasgow, I've I found myself, I suppose, thinking more and more about her over the last few years. And that's led me to research her and, and write about her and uh, talk about her to anyone who's interested in listening. So so that is that is it in a nutshell. So let's begin with a little bit of background, which is we have to understand the Ptolemies as well, and not to be confused with the scientist Ptolemy, who has no relation to the current, these Ptolemies. So that, of course, they begin with the fall, the rise by the fall of Alexander's empire after his death, and that would pay the way for the dynasty until the fall of Cleopatra. So let's begin with a little bit of background history on the Ptolemies. So the founder of the dynasty is called Ptolemy Sota, and he is one of Alexander the Great's companions and one of his generals. And when Alexander dies and and his empire is divided up between all of his uh, former companions and generals, Ptolemy chooses Egypt. It's a very good choice. It is uh, a very, very wealthy uh, kingdom. It's very rich in natural resources both things like uh, grain and other crops because of the annual inundation of the Nile, but also things like metals and minerals in the quarries in the desert. And it also has the Red Sea trade with India and China. And it's also very easily protectable as well. And because the the, the companions, the, the new kings, were all very, uh, very fractious and, and uh, declared war on each other quite a bit. You know, there was a, there was a lot of upheaval in the wake of Alexander's death and the establishment of these new kingdoms, and they were all basically trying to get one over on each other and, and um, amass more and more territory at each other's expense. Ptolemy wanted to have a, a sort of defendable uh, kingdom, and so Egypt is is great for that, really. 
And so this is in at the very end of the fourth century BCE when when he's establishing his kingdom. And then we go down through the generations all the way to Ptolemy the twelfth in the um, early to mid first century BCE. And Cleopatra is one of his children, one of his daughters, and she is born in around 69 BCE. She's his second daughter. He has an older daughter, Berenike, then Cleopatra, then a younger daughter, Arsinoe, and then two sons who would go on to be Ptolemy the 13th and Ptolemy the 14th. And I should also mention that she isn't the only Cleopatra in the dynasty. So if you read about the Ptolemies, there's quite a few Cleopatras down there. So she isn't the first Cleopatra either. Yes, exactly. Cle- Cleopatra is, is a very sort of popular um, Greek name, Macedonian name, and it's it's part of dynasty from quite early on. And so the Cleopatra that we're talking about today is actually the seventh Cleopatra. So when she's written about in, in ancient history textbooks, we refer to her as Cleopatra the seventh. And of course, we've discussed this in our episode with Adrian Jones with a while ago on Unicesa when because they, they were quite kind of like the Habsburgs in a way, they were quite incestuous in uh, the Ptolemy dynasties. And this justice said that is, she might have been the result of a concubine because she doesn't seem to be having you know, the, the Habsburg jaw or any sign of you know, the incest, uh, the, the incest traits that you find that can become quite common after a few generations. So it doesn't seem to have any traits of that. So we discussed that she could be the result of a concubine that, and that's how she was, how she doesn't have this in, this, you know, Habsburg traits, to put it that way. Well, the Ptolemies do practice incestuous marriage, brother-sister marriage, but there is this question mark over whether these were full consummated marriages or just sort of diplomatic uh, marriages. So the first Ptolemies to do this, Ptolemy II and his sister Arsinoe, they don't have any children. Um, Ptolemy's, Ptolemy II's heir, Ptolemy III, is his child from uh, an, an earlier marriage. So it's possible that some of the um, brother-sister marriages that take place through the family line are consummated and children do arise from those. But it's also possible that, that, that they, they didn't. So we don't actually know precisely how incestuous and inbred the Ptolemaic dynasty was. I mean, certainly... The Ptolemies intermarry with uh, members of other neighboring dynasties, the Seleucids, the Athlids, etc., as well. So we we are seeing sort of um, new members of the family brought in. And so when it comes down to Cleopatra, her father, Ptolemy the Twelfth, is actually the he's illegitimate. He isn't he is not the the son of his father and his father's wife. He is the the son of his father and a mistress. So we don't know who his mother was. And likewise, we don't know who Cleopatra's mother was. So again, she could have been uh, the the child of a mistress because Strabo, uh, an ancient uh, geographer who writes about Egypt, he he writes that only Berenike, um, Ptolemy XII's eldest daughter, was legitimate. So from, from his marriage and the younger four children were illegitimate so from someone else and so yes i don't i don't think we need to worry about cleopatra being uh inbred or, or, or anything like that 
Another thing I wanted to discuss before we go into her life as well is that we don't really know what she looked like. We do have the famous bun behind her head on the statue, but that's about it. We don't really know. She has been described as beautiful, but uh, some historians doubt that it was, it was more her intelligence that made her beautiful. Not She wasn't necessarily beautiful in the sense that we think of beautiful, but, you know, it's, we don't, and again, we don't really know what she looked like either. Absolutely. It's it's very late writers like Cassius Dio, so hundreds of years after Cleopatra's death, that start calling her beautiful and explaining that her appeal to Caesar and Antony and, and potentially Octavian as well was down to how beautiful and sexy she was. Whereas Plutarch, who he was he was writing after Cleopatra's death, but he was using information from people who had known her at the time, his uh his grandfather had uh, contacts in the royal court. So they they had some family stories. So Plutarch tells us that it's not that she's beautiful. It's not that she's not beautiful. It's just that her, her appeal and her charm is to do with her personality and her charisma. And so we know that she was very intelligent and we know that she was very well educated. And we we know based on what Plutarch tells us that she had a beautiful speaking voice and was was very good at sort of conversation and and uh, I guess what we today we call people skills. She was very good at at sort of manipulating people at, at presenting herself to people in a way that would appeal to them. So she's different with Caesar than she is with Antony, and then she's different again with Octavian. So yes, I, I think this is a case of of uh, a woman who is appealing because of her personality and the fact that she's extremely wealthy and has a, a lot of money that uh, Romans want to make use of. So let's talk about her upbringing in the Ptolemy. What was it like to be a Ptolemy child? And we talked about education and, of course, it must seem quite a lot of education considering she spoke of well over four languages, uh, I believe, seven, if I remember Correctly, and so the thought about education under the Ptolemies and in, in uh, for Cleopatra around the her upbringing. So we don't know anything for sure about her upbringing or the upbringing of, of any of her siblings, really, because ancient authors are not interested in children. They, they do not care, really, uh, to record childhood, even of, of famous people, uh, unless something um, strange happens that, that throws a light on who they later become something that can be attributed to the gods. So Cleopatra, well, she would have been born in Egypt, probably in Alexandria. She would have spent her childhood uh, in Alexandria at the royal court. She would have been very well educated because that's something that Hellenistic royal families, they they do care very much about education. It's, It's something that they all compete with each other about. And Hellenistic monarchs are very educated and cultured they they write their own scholarship they speak a lot of languages they they do all sorts of of medical experimentation and and uh, things like that so Cleopatra had the benefit of growing up next to the great library and the museum and there are a whole lot of very important intellectuals who who work out of those places and so she was probably educated using the resources of the library and the resources of this circle of intellectuals, because we do hear about her being interested in um, medicine and pharmacy and pharmacology and toxicology and cosmetics and even alchemy, potentially. So she she is clearly 
very uh she has a very inquiring mind and, and she puts that to good use and obviously she would have been educated in things like diplomacy as well and, and what was what was required to to rule a kingdom because the Ptolemies don't just reign they they rule they are the, the commanders of the armed forces they are the ultimate um sort of person to whom you you can uh, petition um on the administrative side about things to do with the law and, and with money and everything else hmm. So let's talk about her marriage to her brother, which, of course, then it, uh, I mean, I all know how that ends up, but let's talk about what point in, how old were they when they got married, Ptolemy and Cleopatra? Well, the Ptolemies need to have a king and a queen. It's, mm. it's very, very unusual for a, for a king or a queen to reign by themselves. Um, and it doesn't tend to last very long or go very well when they try. So it's standard to have a king and a queen. And because Cleopatra's father dies in around uh, 51 BCE, he names her as his oldest surviving daughter and Ptolemy XIII as his oldest surviving son as king and queen joint rulers. Now, Cleopatra at this time is about 18. So, you know, she's basically uh, an adult woman. And Ptolemy XIII is about 10. So he's a child. He is really not particularly significant as as far as his ability to to rule is concerned. He has um, a bunch of advisors, um, Pothinus, uh, Achilles, who do it for him. And so when we when we hear about the the power struggles between Cleopatra and Ptolemy the Thirteenth um, in the first couple of years, so from fifty one BCE. Um, Cleopatra initially tries to marginalize Ptolemy the Thirteenth uh, and rule mainly by herself, and then from about forty nine, um, Ptolemy the Thirteenth um, manages to depose Cleopatra and take power. What we're really hearing about are struggles between their political factions. I mean, Cle- Cleopatra, as an adult, is 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 obviously wielding influence herself, but Ptolemy the Thirteenth. It's because he's got adult male advisors who are doing it for him. Mm-hmm. So their marriage is entirely a diplomatic marriage of convenience. It's in name only. It's it's you know she's eighteen, he's ten. It's that they're they're being he's being controlled by his advisors. It's it's not what we would recognize as any kind of of uh, partnership. What's what did you just have re- regency or was it didn't matter if you were a woman or a man who reigned on the throne she had full power as queen when she reigned she wasn't just just a regent until Ptolemy was of age no I mean the the I the, the, well it depends on who you ask from the Roman perspective they were both um children and needed to have Roman oversight so one of the reasons that the Romans get involved in Egypt is because there's this idea that Ptolemy uh, the twelfth, their father, has basically left them um, to Rome. He's he's made Rome um, essentially their 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 regent. He's made uh, his friend Pompey their guardian. And this is this is from the Roman perspective, and they of course do not agree with this. They Cleopatra is is perfectly capable of ruling independently, and. Uh, Ptolemy XIII's advisors do not want any sort of Roman interference. So there is this question of of who exactly should be 
the person in charge of this situation and they all have different ideas about it and yes i mean as we we see later in her life uh cleopatra rules alongside her son ptolemy the 15th um caesar the son of the son of caesar who's known as caesarian little caesar and so although technically he is the king and the pharaoh ruling alongside her in reality he is a baby and then a child and it's not until he's about 16 that he starts actually doing things as king and pharaoh so so she she not you know is is, is ruling in his name for many years so of course if she doesn't rule for long as you mentioned she gets expelled in 49 bc by her brother so let's talk about because i personally what what does she do before she does meet caesar of course eventually but what does she do in the meantime before before she meets Caesar, does she try to build the forces against Ptolemy, or how, how does she plan to take over for Q from the start? I think there's again, it's it's not really a very well attested period of history because we we hear about it through Roman sources, and the mm. Romans are really only interested as far as it pertains to Rome. So we hear about the power struggle between Cleopatra and Ptolemy the Thirteenth because Caesar is involved when he goes to um, Alexandria later and gets involved in the civil war between them and has to basically choose a side and and try and find a solution. So we don't get the the sort of precise uh, blow-by-blow account of of what happens. So Cleopatra is deposed at some point in, in 49. She goes to Upper Egypt um uh to to potentially try and, and gather some support from the uh the people there whereas uh Ptolemy the 13th is is obviously in Alexandria with the court uh that doesn't work at some point she goes to Syria neighboring neighboring region she may take her younger sister Arsinoe with her then although Arsinoe later is back in Egypt on the side of Ptolemy the 13th and Ptolemy the 14th so it's it's all quite messy and we're not really sure who was where and, and when they were there. What we do know is that Ptolemy XIII's advisors make really a, a catastrophic mistake and that's that they kill Pompey. Yeah. When... Oh, I want to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, because as you know, there's a, Caesar at this point has crossed the Rubicon, of course, and uh, there was a civil war, as you know, the Romans love their civil wars. And uh, Pompey eventually end up losing and flees to Egypt, and there Ptolemy capture him, and he, as you said, he behead him, and he shows Caesar his head on a on a plate, as they say, the story goes. So, the, what what does the let's talk about Caesar's arrival in Egypt and how he's there, how he's terrified of a sweep when he sees see Pompey's head on a plate and what what's going on there. So let's talk about Caesar's stay in Egypt, which is of course one of the most more famous aspects of Cleopatra's mm. Yeah, so so Pompey has come to Egypt because Caesar has really rather decisively defeated him in battle in uh in the in the civil war and in this particular stage of the civil war. So so Pompey comes to Egypt hoping that he can uh get help basically from from Cleopatra and Ptolemy the 13th to to rebuild his forces and his war chest and everything else 
he's mistaken. Um, Ptolemy the Thirteenth, Cleopatra's not there. You know, she she's she's gone. Um, Ptolemy the Thirteenth's advisors do not want to get involved in a Roman civil war. They do not want Roman interference in their kingdom, taking control of their charge. Ptolemy the Thirteenth. Uh, so they they ambush uh, Pompey, they murder him, they cut off his head, and and uh, when Caesar arrives in Egypt chasing Pompey, just you know a little a little while later, and is confronted with Pompey's head uh, on a plate in a box, uh, how, however however you you want to sort of imagine it, he is probably on the one hand a little bit relieved because the death of Pompey means you know the the, the death of his opponent, but he is also Pompey was his friend and his ally. At one point, Pompey was his son-in-law and the father of, of his uh, his grandchild um, before his daughter and, and his grandchild died. So he and Pompey have been close for many years. And it's also massively disrespectful to Rome for such a thing to happen. And so he's he's grief-stricken and he's furious and he basically wants to sort the situation out to Rome's satisfaction, really, because um, Ptolemy the Twelfth owed a lot of money to various Romans, including Caesar. He wants that money back. He needs that money for yeah. um, his his wars and his his initiatives at home. And Egypt needs to be stable because they need the grain and all the other natural resources that the but they were in a breadbasket at the time to Rome. Yeah, exactly. Because because of the Nile and the inundation and the the sort of agricultural fertility of Egypt. It was a huge source of Egyptian grain. And so Caesar really needs to get Egypt under control so that he can get back to doing everything else that he needs to do. So he's not endeared to to Ptolemy XIII because of the head on a plate. Um, Cleopatra sees her opportunity. She arranges a meeting with Caesar and we have the story of her being wrapped in a carpet or or in a bag or something like that and, and being sort of dumped out at his feet. However she got into the palace, she did so secretly. She has this meeting with Caesar. She clearly proves to him that she is capable of ruling Egypt. And when the next morning... And then even more than talk, just talking, as we know. Well, maybe, I don't know. At, the, at that <laughs> stage, maybe later. But certainly the next morning after their meeting... When Caesar and Cleopatra appear together, Ptolemy the Thirteenth has a massive tantrum and uh, is not happy about about it. But to all intents and purposes, Caesar says, "I am going to enforce the terms of your father's will. You are ruling together. That's that." And well, it's not that there there is then a, a sort of civil war in Alexandria over the next few months while uh, Ptolemy the Thirteenth's faction fight um Cleopatra and Caesar's faction but ultimately uh what happens is Ptolemy XIII dies in battle um or or at least he he falls off his ship in the middle of a battle and drowns in full armor in the Nile um which means that the crown passes to Ptolemy the 14th uh, the youngest uh brother and Cleopatra and Ptolemy the 14th are set up as king and queen of Egypt Cleopatra as Caesar's baby, um, or a baby that she claims is Caesar's. Caesar doesn't argue with her about this. And so Cleopatra is basically ruling um, independently because uh, once again, she 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 is now um, you know 20 uh, or, or thereabouts, a little bit older, and her brother 
youngest brother once again is, is sort of 10 or so and there's no competition really and so when Caesar finally leaves Egypt um, he's he's stabilized the country he's gone on a massive Nile cruise with Cleopatra and a load of navy and, and armed forces showing the population of Egypt this is your queen she's backed by Rome behave yourselves he leaves and Cleopatra is then left in charge of Egypt. And, and of course, she's left alone because she does get a pregnancy after Caesar leaves Egypt to the infamous Caesarean. Yeah, so she she has she has a son, she has an heir, so she's she's pretty satisfied. She she's got her her position has been approved by Rome. It's it's confirmed by Rome. She's got troops there to back her up. She's got a son that she she can use as her successor. And once she has her son Caesarian, her brother mysteriously dies because he is now irrelevant and, and surplus to requirements. So uh, Ptolemy the Fourteenth dies, and he is replaced as her co-ruler by the baby Caesarian. So, to all intents and purposes, Cleopatra is ruling Egypt alone as as queen regnant. So, and let's talk about the next big event, which is, of course, uh, the death of Caesar, and she goes to Rome after. Is that to you know? I believe it. She believe, does. Does she believe that Caesarion is should be the rightful heir, her, her son of Caesar, and or does she just want you know that you know leverage? You know what? What is what is her plan for Rome when she comes back after Caesar's death? Uh, well, so Cleopatra is in Rome in forty four when Caesar is assassinated. And she she leaves um, pretty quickly because it it's not a safe place for her to be, for Caesarian to be. There's a lot of um, civil unrest in, in Rome over the coming months. Now, I don't think Cleopatra had any plan for Rome whatsoever. Um, all she really wanted from Rome was support. Mm. She has her kingdom. She she has um, her her realm. Um, one of the things that she wants to do is is improve the strength and stability of the Ptolemaic kingdom. It was once a massive empire. It had much more territory around the Mediterranean um, during the reigns of Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II than it, than it has during Cleopatra's reign. And what she wants to do is make Egypt strong and stable so that she can pass it on to her her children to the next generation continue the Ptolemaic dynasty. She wants to keep Egypt as an independent kingdom. She doesn't want it being um, taken by Rome and, and turned into a province the way that had happened to all the rest mm-hmm. of Alexander's generals' kingdoms. So, as far as she's concerned, what she wants from Rome is what she's currently got. She wants to continue that. So, after Caesar's death, she for a little while she's she's really not sure who is is the best Roman to to ally herself with. And she finds that Brutus and Cassius, um, two of Caesar's assassins, are in the Near East and they want Egyptian support. And because she's a a Roman client queen, she's obliged to give it to them, but she she prevaricates and delays. And in the end, she doesn't end up giving them anything. So when Antony comes into the Near East, uh, once once he is uh, sort of formally... Um, uh, one of the triumvirate and then is given control of the Near East and has to sort it all out. She's able to say to him, you know, I, I didn't help them. I remained loyal to Caesar. Um, let's work together. 
And she basically wants Anthony to be like Caesar, to be her benefactor and to represent her interests in Rome. But I don't think she ever had any idea, any any thought that Caesarian might rule Rome or do anything in Rome because he's not Roman. He's yes, he's Caesar's son, but legally he's not a Roman citizen. He he's not a, he's an Egyptian. He's he's a foreigner. So he can't do anything in Rome apart from be a client king of Egypt. Now you do have the famous story. I don't remember exactly when this happened, but you know, they do get involved in the romance as well, Cleopatra and Anthony. So I mean, they have the famous. I don't remember what the topic was, but the general comes in and he he sees them together and he says, and he tells you something. I don't remember exactly how the story goes, but Anthony replies back, "Who cares? I'm screwing a princess." Well, it's it's a little it's a little bit more than that. So um, he he and uh, Octavian obviously have have a, an ongoing rivalry as to who is really Caesar's uh, heir, and and uh, you know Octavian can claim that he was legally Caesar's heir. He was adopted by Caesar, so he is now going by the name of of Caesar himself. Um, whereas Antony, of course, was was Caesar's, you know, number two, his ally. He's he's a better um, politician, you know, more experienced politician in general. And there is a period later on where Antony is married to Octavian's sister, Octavia, and so they they exchange letters and and uh, basically, yes, uh, Antony's saying to him, "Look, why do you care? You know, you have all sorts of um, bits on the side, and I don't care about those." Why do you care about mine? And you know, it's it. Well, Octavian cares because it suits him to care because it, it it's something that he can hold over Antony. That Antony has this relationship with this this foreign woman, um, this this powerful woman who is is basically his boss. Uh, and and he makes out that you know Antony's emasculated by Cleopatra and everything else. But I think. We don't know really a lot about Caesar's relationship with Cleopatra because I think it suited the later sources to to try and sort of basically cover it up Um, because, of course, Caesar was Octavian's adopted father. Um, Octavian doesn't want Caesar being, you know, bad mouth because of his relationship with Cleopatra. So we don't know very much about it, whereas Octavian wants to badmouth Antony and to use his relationship with Cleopatra against him. So we hear a lot more about their relationship and about how you know Antony is is basically how he's running around after Cleopatra he's doing what she says he's massaging her feet in public he's doing all these sort of humiliating degrading things that Roman men should should never do and the interesting thing about it is is that when we read this these sources today we can read them as oh they they actually have they have a nice relationship they they have a genuinely sort of it's it's romantic, it's passionate, it's a relationship of equals, they're working together to try and achieve the same goals. It does seem that they genuinely care for each other. It's not just simply a transactional sort of relationship. And so we we today will read the sources in a different way to how ancient Romans thought about all of these things. You know, you, you didn't have a relationship of equals. The the man was the, the superior partner and and for a for a man to give up any any of his autonomy to, to a woman was just unthinkable. And so this is why Anthony is is presented in in a very negative light for his relationship with Cleopatra because he he is he's happy to work with her and, and to and to do things that she wants done. 
So, of course, as you know, that Octavian and uh, Antony do work together to defeat Brutus in, and in the, and, uh, you know, Pompey's son. So, in the end, they do win, but then they do have a falling out. And the next big thing, of course, is, and the, is the Battle of Actium, where Cleopatra as well is present with her, her navy and her fleet. So, uh, so, but they do lose, of course, but let's talk about the Battle of Actium and Cleopatra's fleet at the, at the press, at presence. Yeah, Actium is quite interesting because it's made out in Octavian's propaganda. Actium is made out to be this this massive, um, important, emphatically decisive battle in which he defeated Antony and Cleopatra and became master of the Roman world. And in reality, it's really not like that at all. It's a, it's sort of it's pretty minor, pretty disappointing. It's uh, not really much to do with Octavian. It's his 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 uh, right hand man, his admiral Agrippa, is the one that that sort of wins the battle, and it's really only one in in one respect because uh, Cleopatra leaves. But what Antony and Cleopatra wanted to accomplish, their their ships were blockaded in, so they wanted to to break through the blockade and and get out. Um, away from Actium and they managed to do that but because they left it's it's painted as a defeat for Antony but of course it's another year before Octavian actually goes to Alexandria and and invades Egypt so there's a whole year after Actium where Cleopatra is still queen Antony is still triumvir there's a whole lot of diplomatic activity and embassies going between the different groups and Antony still has a lot of Romans on his side, a lot of senators with him, a lot of consuls. He still has his legions, etc. So when Octavian, and when he's Augustus as well later, when he promotes Actium and he puts it up in stone reliefs and has arches and all sorts of displays and coins and all those sorts of things, and it's written about in poetry by Virgil, it's made out to be a big deal and really that's a sort of retrospective sort of rewriting of the history to make it a bigger deal um so it's the foundation of his authority uh but it's it's not really a very strong foundation it it takes what happens the following year when he and his army finally get to egypt and antony's forces basically desert him at that point that's when the decision is made, right, okay, Octavian is the winner here. And of course, that's what they do get, and she do get another kids by Antony as well. So, and so they talk about the birth of Alexander, Helos, and Cleopatra, etc. Yeah, so this is this is one of the things about um, Cleopatra. not Cetera. Uh, yeah, so Cle- Cleopatra's uh, relationship with Antony, it, it lasts for a decade and they have three children. They have the the fraternal twins, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Cellini. Uh, and then they have um, a younger son, Ptolemy Philadelphos. And the plan, they have plans for these three children. These three children are going to be kings and a queen themselves. They give them territories. They They have an idea that in the Near East, they will rule their own kingdoms under the sort of umbrella of, of Cleopatra. So 
there is an idea for their for their dynasty, basically for for Cleopatra's dynasty and and then her her own uh, and Antony's dynasty. So these children are important um, when when they're born. They are they are seen as being the future, and obviously we know in hindsight that it doesn't doesn't work out. But certainly, it was all very exciting at the time that there are these. You know, Cleopatra has four children. Uh, Octavian only has one. You know, it's it's uh, she is this huge achievement that she's got all these children that she can put into service for her dynasty. So of course, the the legitimacy the legitimization uh, of cesareans, of course, are important as well because it wasn't birth and the legitimization. Sorry, sorry, legitimization of was kind of a big deal as well in ancient Rome, and he hasn't been legitimized until thirty four BC, was he? Uh, well, his legitimacy is irrelevant. It's something that um, really wasn't an issue at the time. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, to the Egyptians. He was Cleopatra's son. He was the son of Caesar. She's able to present herself as Isis and Caesar as Osiris and Caesarian as Horus. And that's that works very neatly in the Egyptian belief system because Osiris was was dead and, and uh, you know, um, Isis and Horus had, had to sort of... Um, so it wasn't like the Roman world then where legitimacy was important from birth on? No, was... not at all, not at all. So... Um, in Egypt, uh, Caesarian is the king. He is the pharaoh. It, it really doesn't matter. For the Romans, it also really doesn't actually matter because Caesarian isn't Roman. He He's not Caesar's heir. He has no legal rights. He can't sit in the Senate or anything else. And the only reason it's an issue is because Octavian likes to present himself as the son of Caesar. And of course, he's Caesar's great nephew, and so he is related to Caesar. But the reason he's able to present himself as the son of Caesar is because Caesar adopted him in his will. And so Octavian owes all of his own personal authority to this adoption. He's only got access to Caesar's money and Caesar's soldiers because of this adoption. And so he doesn't want any rivals. And so that includes Caesarian. But it also includes Antony and any other influential Roman. So, I mean, it's one of the reasons that he has Antony's um, oldest Roman son, Antillus, murdered in Alexandria, because um, Antillus could, well, Antillus would be Antony's heir, his political heir, his military heir. Antillus could do for Antony what Octavian has done for Caesar and avenge him later. So, he he has him murdered. So Octavian doesn't want any rivals of any kind. And so it just, just so happens that Caesarian, by bearing the name Caesar, is a bit more of a of an obvious rival than some of the other um people who are uh, part of all of this as well. Something that's fascinating me is that Octavian kind of just disappeared from history. We don't really hear much about him. And he he isn't really important as you think he would become because he's exactly Caesar's son and Cleopatra's son. You think he become and play would play a more important part in the aftermath and try to, you know, for example, avenge for the Egyptian throne and go back where he's claim his right, but he does just kind of disappear out of history. Well, he's murdered, so uh, he's yeah. uh, that's the thing in 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 hindsight because all the sources know that he was murdered. Mm. 
they don't need to um, apply any sort of importance to him because they know how his story ends. So yes, at the time, he was potentially quite uh, a dangerous prospect because he's Cleopatra sends him away from um, Egypt. She, the plan is for him to go um, over to India and it's he's intercepted on his way there. So if, if he'd managed to leave Egypt and go off to India, we probably would have, over the next uh, few years, that there would have been sort of worries about, oh, is he going to come back? Is, is, he, is he going to bring an army back to Egypt? Or is, is he simply going to, you know, be um, a rich sort of leisurely um, nothing in, 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 in uh, India and just, just sort of die young from sort of dissipation? So, so we, we'd certainly have, have heard about what he was doing after that. But yes, he's he's murdered. So uh, his story comes to an end and it suits everybody to pretend that there's there's nothing else to worry about. And the same is true of, of Antony and Cleopatra's other sons, Alexander Helios and Ptolemy Philadelphos. They die, we we assume, because they disappear from, from history. We don't even get information. They We don't know if they were murdered. We don't know if they just died of illness they just disappear because they have ceased to be relevant to to the story because the story is now about Octavian becoming Augustus and being the Roman emperor. So these loose ends from the Republic are not something that later commentators bother to write about because by that time, they really were insignificant, no matter how important they'd been at the time. And of course, let's talk about the infamous death of Antony and Cleopatra because it's kind of a Romeo. I feel like it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet death over the over their death as well. Yeah, it's 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 got a little bit of everything. It's 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 very sad and very tragic. It's also got a bit of comedy, and it's also got a bit of mystery to it as well. So mm. by the time we get to the summer of thirty. Um, Cleopatra has basically washed her hands of Antony. He has ceased to be useful to her. He's actually actively harmful at this point. You know, she's she's been um, writing to Octavian. She she has been proposing to him things like, um, you know, she could abdicate in favor of the children. Um, she could, uh, you know, give him Antony. And and he Octavian has made it clear that yes, Antony's got to go. Um, for there to be any sort of future for Cleopatra, for her children, for the dynasty, Antony's got to be taken out of the equation. So he he is now a liability for her. And so she writes to him. She writes him a letter telling him that she has committed suicide. And so he's so distraught about this that he then tries to commit suicide himself. Uh, he doesn't make a success of it. He He injures himself quite badly. Then he finds out that she's not actually dead. And so he drags himself sort of through the palace to, to Cleopatra's mausoleum, where she's bar- she's barricaded herself inside with all of her treasure. And he manages to sort of climb up through the window in, into the mausoleum. She she manages to picture him dragging himself over the palace. It's in train yeah. London, just trying to get the Cleopatra. You can it's it, you can really match in the scene that it is. I mean, it, it it must have been sort of simultaneously hilarious and horrible 
to mm. see this 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 poor bleeding disemboweled man trying to kind of climb in the window and and Cle- yeah and Cleopatra and her her maids trying to kind of pull him in it must have been it must have been like a sight to behold mm. um so then in in the mausoleum he he dies in her arms and she is is apparently grief stricken by this um but before she can do anything else the Romans manage to break in. And so she tries to stab herself in the chest. They stop her. They disarm her. She's then put under house arrest in the palace for the next couple of weeks. She tries to starve herself to death. Um, Octavian threatens to kill her children to to sort of make her eat. So she starts eating. Um, She still thinks at that point that that she can potentially salvage the situation. She, She thinks that they can come to an agreement. Antony's dead. He's out of the way. So she thinks she can either stay in power in Egypt or she can abdicate in favor of her children. But she realizes that, no, that's not what's going to happen. Octavian is going to seize Egypt, turn it into a Roman province, and he will take her back to Rome and he will put her on display in his triumph. And then either he will murder her because that can sometimes happen. Caesar had Vercingetorix, uh, one of the, the Gallic kings, murdered after his triumph. Um, or she she lives in obscurity under house arrest in some villa in, in Rome, and she doesn't really want to do that either. So that's when she, she uh, poisons herself in some way that the Romans don't really know. So I want to know how much... Well, I do believe Shakespeare used Plutarch for his plays about uh, Caesar and Mark Antony. But how much of the death scene in in his play is an invention of how much how accurately did he get the death scene of Cleopatra and Antony? Um. Well, there were witnesses. Um. They they had plenty of of, of witnesses both um on the street in Alexandria outside the mausoleum. Inside the mausoleum, there there were staff. And this is what we have to remember. when The sources don't necessarily tell us this, but wealthy people in antiquity were always, always attended by enslaved people. So they, they always had staff around them. And the staff were basically seen as part of the furniture and not worth specifically mentioning, but they were there. And so we know that Cleopatra, Limpos wrote about her death, and this is one of the sources that Plutarch uses for his later writing. And we know also that, that Plutarch's grandfather had friends in Alexandria. So I think the the scenes are likely to be fairly, fairly accurate because we do have named sources and, and named documents of where all the information came from. So what's in Plutarch is largely accurate. Then Shakespeare uses translations of Plutarch to write his plays so the plays are in in some respects are quite faithful to certain scenes from the life of Plutarch and so I think it's probably more likely to be accurate than a lot of other ancient you know other Shakespeare plays (laughs) (laughs) yeah other yeah like more accurate than Macbeth for example um but as as it turned out I mean People, people thought that Shakespeare's depiction of Richard III was was all negative propaganda and all untrue. And then when they found Richard III, it turned out that actually 
he did have a spinal curvature and 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 so on so so Shakespeare wasn't like making making stuff up to to sort of promote the Tudor dynasty so yeah maybe maybe Shakespeare is actually quite accurate <laughs> so something that's fascinating to me I was part of this in the second episode about Egypt as well where it's that the pyramids are equally old to Cleopatra as she is to us that's kind of crazy to think about that they are whereas already 2000 over 2000 years and she is 2000 years old to us now so it's it's crazy to think about how old they actually are at this point in time even in antiquity they were and they were they were ancient to the egypt to the ancient to the romans as well well this this is something to bear in mind when we talk about egypt egypt was so much older than rome rome was a relatively new um city city state uh during the the latter part of the republic it's only very recently become um an, a mediterranean empire and so it's it's one of the things that we see actually the the comparison between the city of alexandria which is this amazing hellenistic showcase of like beautiful brand new buildings and rome which is this very sort of topsy-turvy higgledy-piggledy grotty sort of shambling city made of mud and stucco and it's one of the things that Octavian does when he becomes Augustus and he has all of the money from the conquering Egypt and, and taking all of the Egyptian assets. He rebuilds the city of Rome. You know, he, he it said um, he found Rome a city of brick and he left it a city of marble. And it's true because having seen the cities in the east like Alexandria and returning to Rome and thinking this really isn't the capital of a world empire and it needs to be and then so he he perhaps more than anyone else really put his mark on rome as a city to try to make it compete with with places like alexandria do we know if they will believe that the pyramids were built by alien as well or is that um i don't think <laughs> anyone sensible believes that the pyramids were built by aliens <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I, I know that the Romans did believe that there was a man in the moon. They they did write about the face that you could see in the moon. And there is an ancient Roman science fiction novel um, called A True Story. And that imagines the kinds of strange races that live on the moon. Um, but I don't know that they necessarily thought about aliens in the way that we do. Thank you so much for coming in. It was always a pleasure to talk with you. Before you go, of course, do you have any social media what you need to put in the description or where people can find your books and their website you want people to go to or if they have any questions, where they might, where they might find you? Yeah, uh, I am at JL Dracon on Twitter. Uh, I have a, a personal website. You can find out all about my books and everything else on there. And... Uh, I also have a University of Glasgow uh, webpage, which is a little bit more academic if you want sort of academic information. So, yes, I, if, if you Google me, you, you will find me. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for coming on. This has been World That Aged Well. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. I'm, again, I'm sorry if there were any background noise on this episode. I do apologize for that. I'm not at my home office, as I mentioned in the beginning. So I apologize again. But if you like this episode, consider writing a little review on Apple Podcasts. That would help us out a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.